from the National Association of Evangelicals. Welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, being a pastor's wife. Host Leith Anderson, NAE president, talks with Kay Warren, co-founder of Saddleback Church, along with her husband, Rick. Let's join in. I'm Leith Anderson, president of the NAE, here today with Kay Warren. Rick and Kay Warren founded Saddleback Church in Orange County, California in 1980, and it's grown to be one of the largest and most influential churches in the United States. Kay has written several books, including Choose Joy, Dangerous Surrender, Say Yes to God, and a new book coming out entitled Sacred Privilege, which is about being a pastor's spouse. A frequent Bible teacher and conference speaker, she is a strong advocate for those living with mental illness, those with HIV and AIDS, and the orphaned and vulnerable children who are left behind. It's wonderful to have you with us today, Kay. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. So, Kay, you have been in ministry your entire life. You're a pastor's daughter, a pastor's wife. So I've got to ask, did you grow up wanting to do this? Did you want to be a pastor's <laughs> wife? Uh, you know, <clears throat> I actually wanted to be a missionary. And um, growing up in the 50s and 60s in a pretty conservative denomination, that was really the only option open to me as a girl um, if I really wanted to serve the Lord full time. So um, that was the direction I was heading. And um, I was not opposed to being, uh, you know, a pastor's wife. I, I had good feelings about growing up in a pastor's home, so it wasn't something that I ran from, uh, but I sure didn't anticipate it. So a life in ministry, it can be wonderfully rewarding and meaningful, but can also be deeply challenging with unexpected pressures and stresses, many of which are kind of unique to pastors and their families. So let me ask you a question that, that I've been asked, but I'll put it to you specifically, and that is, what's something that you would tell young people who are entering this unique position of being married to a pastor? Well, I really do believe it is a sacred privilege. You alluded to the title of um, of a book that I'm in the process of writing. And, and um, when I first started teaching it to um, ministers' wives almost 30 years ago, I first called it uh, the changing role of the pastor's wife. I was young in ministry. Everything around me was changing. It wasn't the world that my mother, my mother as a pastor's wife, I was used to that. And this role was changing. So I called it the changing role of the pastor's wife. And then um, as Saddleback began to grow and expand, I changed the material title to um, How to Grow with Your Church because then that was the, those were the issues I was um, having to deal with was our church was growing and nothing stayed the same and how did I, how did I adjust to this um, expanding ministry. And then I kind of hit the, a more difficult stage of both life and ministry and I changed the material title to How to Keep the Ministry from Killing You and uh, taught that for several years because that, that really reflected what I saw a life in ministry. I, I was having to do everything I could think of to keep it from killing me. And, um, and now as I settle into you know, this, this fourth decade of ministry, um, I really do see it as a sacred privilege. So when I talk to um, you know, women, and there are increasingly more men whose wives are um, now becoming you know, pastors or uh, senior pastors, um, I really want them to understand that it is a privilege. There is a lot that changes through the years, through the decades. Um, there are periods in which you're going to think that it's going to kill you, and what do you have to do to keep it from killing you? 
and but to settle into that space of believing with all your heart that it is a privilege. I my mom is 92 and has dementia, so there's a lot of her personality and and her memories that are are fading. But when I asked her about her years plus 50 plus years as ministry, she says the same thing every time. She said I always thought being in ministry was a privilege. So that set it up for me to look at um, this as a life of privilege. It's different than any other profession. It has some um, pitfalls and some, as you said, some disappointments that other professions don't have. And honestly, there have been more than a few moments in which, in which I have wished that Rick had been anything but a pastor, that I'd married you know, a plumber or um, a pool cleaner. I don't know, anything but, but a pastor because it's difficult at times. Um, but I really have settled into believing that it's a privilege. And when you look at it through that lens, it allows you to interpret the things that happen in, over the decades of ministry um, with, with that as a framework as opposed to, oh, my gosh, this thing is going to kill me. How am I going to survive? That's a great perspective. I'm trying to envision a book entitled How to Be a Plumber's Wife, but there's probably not a whole market for that. But, but, but that brings up the question of, the expectations that come on a pastor's spouse, particularly a pastor's wife, that are different from being a, a spouse of a pool cleaner or a plumber. And, and yeah. that is that in the church, uh, especially in smaller churches, there may be the expectation that you are sort of a volunteer employee, that you've got to be at everything. How do you deal with that? And specifically, how do you deal with that if you also have uh, a career, employment that's full-time, that people may not take into consideration. So how, how do you deal with those expectations that you sort of come along as um, a free A two-for-one. You know, yeah, it's, a right. two, it's a two-for-one deal. And, well, you know, I have to look at that again through even, um, you know, my parents being in smaller churches and then us being at Saddleback. I mean, we started very small. It was just the two of us. You can't get any smaller than that. Um, and have been in this church now as it's gone through all these stages of, of expansion over these decades. And when I think about that the majority of churches in America really are still churches of under 200, and um, there are pretty hard expectations, I think, of, um, of pastors and their families. And um, what I've tried to balance that with is um, when we started the church, it's like we divided the role down the middle. Um, you know, we had young kids. In fact, we just had a baby at the time, and so there was just the three of us. And and you know, anything Rick didn't do, I did. And over then the course of the years, as more and more people came into the church, I was able to take off some of those hats that I had worn. They they weren't necessarily what I was good at, but somebody needed to do it. And um, you know, then give those jobs away to other volunteers. You know, let me just kind of circle a little bit here because I think part of the problem. Two problems that I see around expectations are one, um, pastors and their families get caught in this walk on water syndrome. Edward, 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 I always say it Edwin, but it's Edward Bratcher, wrote a book um, in the 90s called The Walk on Water Syndrome. And it's excellent. If you can find it anywhere on Amazon or some other you know, book supply, find it because his first chapter alone is, is valuable as he talks about this game, unfortunately, that pastors and their families end up playing with a congregation. 
And nobody really sets out to play this game, I don't think, but there is this expectation, particularly in smaller churches, that the pastor is the minister, and he is therefore supposed to minister. He is supposed to do the ministry. When really the Bible teaches that the pastor is to equip the church members to do the ministry. And um, in smaller churches, there there's this expectation that it's the, the paid professional is supposed to do all the visitation, all the home visitation, all the preaching, all the Wednesday night, you know, Bible studies, all the weekday Bible studies, um, um, the marrying, the burying, the somebody's in the hospital sick. And that is a recipe. I watched it happen to my dad. Um, I watched it happen to um, Rick's dad, who was also a pastor. When when the church has this expectation that the minister is going to do the ministry, that leaves everybody else sitting in the pew watching this poor, exhausted pastor and often his wife or his family doing the majority of the ministry. And that that is a perversion. I really use that word. That's a perversion of what the Bible teaches. The, the pastor is to equip the saints, equip the ministers to do the ministry. And God has given every person sitting in that pew um, or in a gymnasium or rented facility, he, he's given us all a spiritual gift, and it is to build up the body of Christ. So one of the things that I talk to um, pastors and their spouses is, you know, there's a theological um, misunderstanding of what a pastor is supposed to do. And as long as we continue to play that game or, or work off of that broken theology, we're going to be exhausted. We're going to be um, pushed beyond our limits. So I think pastors um, need to go back, look at what the Word says, understand that their prime job is to equip the saints, equip the ministers to do, equip the members to do the ministry, and that spreads out some of the expectations. I think another thing that happens is that if we think we're the ones supposed to be doing all the work, then of course we're going to be trying to walk on water. We're we're going to be superhuman rather than human. And um, I love it in Acts where um, um, some of the apostles break out of this expectation thing and they say, "You guys, we're we're merely humans like you. We're not gods. We're merely human." And when we in the ministry approach our ministry from that place, hey, we are merely human. We are not gods. We can't walk on water. We can't do everything ourselves. And moreover, we're not supposed to. Then I think that it, it creates less of a harmful and even codependent dynamic that happens in congregations where the congregation expects the pastor and his family to be perfect, the pastor and his family sitting up there on the little tiny pedestal trying to balance up there, trying to keep themselves perfect and everybody thinking that they're superhuman. And um, it sets up a, um, a codependent, uh, unhealthy relationship in in congregations. I know that's kind of a long answer, but I really do feel passionately. I've watched it happen. I've seen the, the harmful effects of it, and um, I know that that's not what God has intended for us in, in ministry. All of which is summarized in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which you've kind exactly. of quoted already, that says yeah. that uh, pastors and teachers are to equip the people for the work of the ministry. All right, so let, let's go back to pastors' wives, who are in a context that may be difficult and may be just wonderfully balanced. So 
how should they take care of themselves? And especially, what about setting boundaries? Mm. I, you know, you asked at the beginning what were some of the words of it or advice I would give, and I've been waiting for this specific question because I um, feel so strongly about this. I, I tell pastors' wives, um, and not in a cynical way. Truly, this is not gonna. This is gonna sound cynical and jaded, but it's not. I don't mean it that way at all. But what I tell them is, you need to understand that nobody is going to take care of you but you. Your husband is not going to take care of you. Your church is not going to take care of you. Your friends are not going to take care of you. Your children are not going to take care of you. At the end of the day, you have to learn how to take care of yourself. And the reason for that, the reason I say that is if, if we, you know, you go to a new church and one of the questions that we always ask is, you know, what, what are the health benefits or What's the what are the what's the vacation schedule? What's the um what are the what's the days off? And because we're we're really asking, you know, are you going to take care of me and my family? And there's an element of responsibility where each congregation needs to take really good care, as best financial care of of their pastor as they can. But on the other hand, you and I can't wait for that to happen and be dependent upon that. We have to own the responsibility to take care of ourselves. And I, I divide that into, um, you know, physical, emotional, and spiritual. Let's start with the spiritual. My husband is not going to stand over me and make sure I have a quiet time. He's not going to tell me um, how many verses I need to memorize in a year. He's, he's not the one who can surrender to God for me. He's not the one that can make sure that I have an ever-deepening prayer life with God. Nobody can do that for me but me. I have to take responsibility for my own spiritual walk with God. He can't, nobody else can take care of me emotionally. Um, nobody else can make sure that, that my heart is tender, that I'm, that I'm healthy, that I'm working through the issues that come my way, the challenges, that I'm doing things that pour life back into me and revive me. Nobody can do that but me. And physically, nobody controls what I put in my mouth, you know. Nobody is holding the fork in my hand um, and choosing the quality and the quantity of my food. Nobody's making sure that I'm, you know, getting the right amount of sleep and that I'm, that I'm moving my body, that I'm actually, those are all things that ultimately you and I have to become responsible for. And I want to last in ministry. For me, this has been a lifelong commitment, a lifelong call. It is a privilege that I'm not um, that I that I hold as a sacred trust, and I want to get to the finish line in ministry. I don't want it to kill me in the process. I don't want the the way that I deal with stress or don't deal with stress, or the way that I let my body um, get way out of shape and then find that I can't serve God because I've got all these physical problems that were due to my you know my negligence. I really believe that you and I have to figure out, pastor's wives really need to get this, that you have to control the controllables and leave the uncontrollables to God. So I've had cancer. I've had breast cancer. I've had melanoma. <clears throat> and in one sense of the word, I didn't, I was in the best shape of my life when I got breast cancer. Um, but I can't, I can't, now let that just go and say, okay, well, you know, if it happens again, it happens again, or if something else happens. No, I, I have to pay attention and start taking care of myself physically and emotionally and spiritually. I want to last in ministry. So if, when 
pastor's wives can grasp that it is that no one is going to take care of them but them, then I think that they've got um, a greater chance at at being resilient and and surviving and thriving in what is, as we've already said, often a very difficult um, uh, dynamic or I mean, a, a life, a profession of, of being in the ministry. One of the challenges that comes up is when you face an especially difficult experience and and how private or how public you're supposed to be or what's appropriate in, in dealing with you. You've alluded to that with cancer. Uh, Rick and my wife, Charlene, and I were rode in a bus across Los Angeles a few weeks ago, and, and in our long conversation came up about your son Matthew's death. And I, I was impressed um, how close to the surface were, were Rick's emotions, although it was three years ago. So how do you deal with the difficulties that come when you're kind of a public figure. How do you decide what's public and what's private? And how do you grieve in the midst of all this? Well, that that's a, yeah, I could talk for days on that topic. Um, we decided really early on, he was still in um, college, I was working to put him through, I had finished and he was finishing and we were heading to seminary and our marriage was in terrible shape. We were newlyweds and nothing worked for us, truly nothing worked. All the things that all the marriage books said you would fight about, sex, money, communication, children, in-laws, I mean we were five for five and yet because we had grown up in ministry homes, um, getting help was absolutely not okay. It was frowned upon. Only really crazy people sought any counseling or therapy. Um, the operative, you know, direction was if you love Jesus enough, everything will be fine. And we both love Jesus with all our hearts, and yet we were, our marriage was just horrendous. It was terrible. And, um, he was a youth pastor at the time and we didn't know we didn't know who to talk to. We felt like there was nobody that we could tell that, you know, sex didn't work, that we were fighting constantly, that we didn't know how to talk to each other, that we were massively disappointed in in marriage and didn't know, you know, divorce was not an option, but it sure felt like a prison sentence to look ahead to 50 years of being in a um, miserable marriage. And um so there was this moment in which we put our pride aside and, and started asking for marriage counseling and started talking to somebody about our, our difficulties. And for me, I'll never forget this moment in which I was, um, we'd gone to a pretty difficult counseling situation and we weren't even talking and he was in the living room depressed. I was lying on the bed in our bedroom crying. And um, I just had this vision um, of of God of God's love for me that he saw me as a very broken young woman who had such high dreams and aspirations but who was in absolute misery bound by all these rules that I'd grown up with all these regulations all this this legalism of how I had to perform how I had to walk on water how I couldn't have an imperfect marriage and um, and he saw my despair, and I felt for the first time in my life God's love. I, it's I don't even know how to express it. I'd grown up knowing God loved me. I was a believer. I knew He loved me, but I can honestly tell you, 
I had never felt God's love and his grace. And I had this vision of, of myself as this um, little caterpillar inside a, 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 a chrysalis, a cocoon, and, and suddenly it burst open and, and I was a butterfly and I soared to the sky. And it, it was the recognition that God loved me, that he saw me in my inadequacy, in my failure. He knew where I was stuck. He knew how long I'd been stuck. He knew that I felt like I couldn't go on like this. And instead of meeting me with judgment and more rules and condemnation of why wasn't I a better Christian or I could never be a good pastor's wife, it, it, I, he was, I was met with his love and his grace. And, and the, that experience of that set my spirit free. And I remember lying on that bed saying to myself, I am never going back in that box again. I'm never going back in that box of perfectionism. I'm never going back in that box of hiding. I'm never going back in that box of trying to be who I'm not. If Rick and I have to stand, we, and we weren't even pastoring yet, but I had this vision. If, if we have to stand on the roof of our church and shout to the community, we are just like you. There are some days we don't even like each other. There's some days we're not sure that God exists. We're not sure that this isn't all just some big cosmic joke. We're just like you. We're completely dependent on God to get out of bed in the morning. And so when we actually did start Saddleback a few years later and became um, you know, senior pastor and lead pastor here, we started the church from that place of we're going to be open. We're going to tell people about not just our struggles in the past, but it may become, you know, something that as, it becomes part of the sermon today. Uh, if one of us is speaking, and, and it, we're going to tell you that, you know, we had a fight on the way to church, and we're we're really kind of ticked off at each other, and um, and and oh yeah, um, this prayer that that I've been praying and asking God to answer it, it hasn't happened, and and that creates such doubt, especially at night when you're alone and it's just you and the universe and your pillow and we're going we're gonna to invite other people to join us who are real people like us, people who have struggles, people who have problems, people who are in process. And so we started Saddleback with, um, with that in mind, that, that we were going to be as open about our lives as we could. I think that that's one of the things um, when people say, what's, you know, what's the secret to Saddleback or whatever, and, you know, there's so many answers to that, most of it being the sovereignty of God. But one of them I would say is that we have intentionally tried to live our lives with our own, with our arms open wide. Paul talks in Second Corinthians about, I've opened my arms wide to you. Um, and we've tried to do that. And in that process, I mean, we started Celebrate Recovery at Saddleback, which is a Christian 12-step. So, and over 25,000 people over these 25 years of Celebrate Recovery have gone through it. So we have a church full of people who are trying to live their lives with authenticity, with vulnerability, with, um, with tr true revealing of who we are. So that when Matthew died, when our son died, and when he took his life um, three years, three months uh, ago, we shared it with the congregation. It was, it was natural to share it. Um, and we've shared our grief. Um, we've shared our, 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 the way that we've been crushed by his death. Um, 
we do set boundaries around ourselves. There are some parts of, of his story and the circumstances of his death that aren't public, and we don't intend to make them public. Um, we we share our lives, we share our brokenness, um, we grieve together, we grow together, um, but there are parts that are that are sacred to our family and to our relationship in our marriage and um, with our with our children. But we feel like that that's the most encouraging way to pastor. Nobody is ever helped by us reciting our strengths. If I, you know, if Rick or I led from this place of, look at us, look how strong we are, look how much we love Jesus, look how great we are, all that can do is create discouragement or envy in um, the lives of, of our, our congregant, the, the congregation that we love so much. But if we come from a place of, you know what, if God did not put breath in my lungs this morning and give me the reason to get out of bed, I, I wouldn't because it's hard. It's hard out there. It's, living in this broken planet is hard. And uh, we lean and we press in on God and we lean and press in on each other. So for us, it's the only way. It's the only way. Well, you describe a marvelous com combination of transparency and hope, and it's got to be both. Um, but let me change topics just a little bit here. One when you serve as the wife of the lead pastor of a church, um, you know, you're there in a way, if you were married to a surgeon, you would not be in the operating room. Most professions, husbands and wives, the, the work life is separated, but in church life, they're pretty much, you know, connected and combined. And one of the inevitable parts of leadership is criticism. So when your husband faces criticism, how do you deal with that? Some you know, some pastoral spouses uh, get defensive, others just take it, others just don't know what to do. I, I think that's yeah. a frequently asked question. So what's your answer? Oh, well, well, it is. Well, to me, there's only, it, it's inevitable. It's a, it's a um, occupational hazard, if you will. Criticism and sometimes conflict in a church is an occupational hazard. It happens to everyone. And so you might as well get ready for it, be prepared for it as best you can because it's going to come. Um, sometimes it's, you know, just those little, you know, people give disapproving looks. You can't, they don't say anything, but you can tell they're not, you know, happy. And sometimes they're whisper campaigns. And sometimes that kind of conflict and criticism actually erupts into um, overt war, if you will. And congregations can get split, and they do probably every day. And pastors and their families get... Um, beaten up emotionally and verbally and spiritually and and it is it is truly an occupational hazard um, and so if you know it's coming and you probably already experienced it there's really only a couple things I know to do one is you've just gotta you have to determine that you're gonna run your race for Jesus and you have to you have to get good um, at forgiving um, if you if you're trying to please everybody it's impossible I mean you know this ministry for more than five minutes, you, you try to please crowd A and you get them happy, but that makes crowd B unhappy. And if then you, you try to move over to crowd B and get them happy, then crowd C gets unhappy. And then before you know it, every, you know, all the little crowds or little um, groups within the church are unhappy because it's impossible. It's just impossible to do. And so um, if you don't stay focused on who you're running your race for, 
you're gonna get you're gonna get sidetracked and then secondly you've got to learn to forgive because like I said it you're dealing with messy people and messy people make messes and um, if you don't learn how to forgive you'll become bitter and hardened and um, like I referred to a few minutes ago I really believe that that we're supposed to approach ministry with an arms wide open stance um, second Corinthians I read that probably once a year, um, all of Second Corinthians, because it's such a model for me of ministry. And and in Second Corinthians, Paul talks about how he opened his arms wide to the Corinthians, and yet they closed. You know, they didn't receive him, and yet you you don't hear Paul saying, "So now I'm going to close my arms to you." And when we go to a church, we usually approach it from the, "Oh, I can't wait to love these people. These these people are going to be our friends. We're going to serve Jesus together." And our arms are open wide, and then some hurts come, and some criticism, and maybe some conflict, and and we start closing our arms to in a protective stance. And that's while that's natural on the human level, it's not the way that we can lead best. And our arms have to stay in that open stance of receiving and embracing people in their messiness and their brokenness in their in their um, the fact that they're in process and to do that the only way to keep your arms open is to get good at forgiving and um, not holding on to the hurts that then make our hearts bitter and hard and um, cynical so this is powerful and practical for the, the spouse or the pastor, and just absolutely right on. Let's just switch your audience. Now you're talking to the congregation, and you're giving advice on how they should be helpful to and supportive of uh, the pastor's spouse. What, what do you say to them, some of whom want to be over-controlling, some of whom don't want to be engaged? What, what's the best advice for them? Hmm. Um, well, I... I Gosh, <laughs> if they could see her um, as uh, as integral to to the ministry of the church, not not an add-on, not an appendage to the pastor, not a little tag along, you know, not someone who is frequently, I think, our congregation sees the pastor's wife as um, as a conduit to the pastor. You know, if I can't, maybe I can't get to him, but if I could get to her, if I could tell her my complaint or my, um, you know, my, my quote, observation about this or that, then, um, and they use her as, as a conduit to him. So refrain from that. Um, I would tell the pastor's wife, don't let yourself become a conduit. Encourage people over and over and over. Have you talked to my husband about that? Have you talked to the leadership about this? Have you talked to the elders or the deacons about that? Um, because, you know, that's really their, their responsibility. Um, I don't do that in an angry way, but I have learned long ago to, to ask that question, to be able to look at somebody with empathy and, and validation and say, wow, I, I can hear that is, a, that is a painful thing to you or that is, that's a really big concern to you. Can I ask that you would pass that on to, you know, the pastor himself or to the elders or to the deacons? Um, and I refuse to, to be a conduit. So if a congregation could not use her as a conduit, that would be a very healthy thing for her and reduce her stress. Um, I would say honor the, the pastor and his wife. Make sure that they are given um, adequate time off, uh, not only vacation time, but that they have a day off that you don't bother them with the, the mundane things that can wait until 
hopefully hopefully they take Monday off. I mean, it's not a rigid thing, but usually, you know, I mean, obviously Sunday is not a Sabbath for folks in ministry. So if, if they take Monday off, really respect that. Allow their family the freedom. I would say take care of um, your pastor's children because when you take care of the pastor's children, you are relieving such a burden on the pastor and his wife. In other words, don't look at those kids as having to be perfect. Don't hold a expectation of them that they have to be something different than like normal kids. Um, that you don't, that you're not scrutinizing them for every little flaw or every little um, infraction, and then come report that to the parents. But actually, be cheerleaders for the the pastor's kids and families. One last question. Tell us a little bit more about Sacred Privilege, about the book, and who's the audience, and um, whatever the encouraging word that you've been so hard at work on. Hmm. Well, it is it's a sacred privilege, um, the life and ministry of a pastor's wife. Um, like I said, since I grew up in a pastor's home and I've been a pastor's wife, uh, church plant, you know, we he was a youth pastor, then he was a church planter, and now he's been a senior pastor. Um, I, I think I've seen it all, or almost everything, and um, I really, my heart has always been around pastor's wives to encourage them to, to run the race that, that God has called them, to see what they're doing as, as a privilege, not as a burden. It can be a burden, but I believe that we can, um, we can learn the skills and the resilience that will allow us to make it through. I, I think that one of the places I always go to as I talk to um, pastor's wives is that at the end of the day they have to develop an eternal perspective on life and on ministry because it is hard it is challenging it is unique and sometimes people think oh what's so hard about being in the ministry it's just like any other job no it is not it is a unique role in our world and has unique opportunities and challenges and so to have to develop a, an eternal perspective that makes room in your heart for when the wheels fall off the bus, when conflict comes, when disappointment happens, when wounds happen, when there are delays in the ministry, when you've poured yourself out on behalf of people and they walk away and they go to another church and they tell you that you know they don't want to be a part of your church anymore, when um, the financial struggle that is uh, pretty much a part of most ministry families uh, gets so heavy. What is it that's going to allow you to stay in the race um, until God calls you? Because I really don't want to see ministers and their their families leave the ministry because of hurt, because of the hard things. If God calls you to another career, great, fantastic. I mean, go with my blessing, but don't leave the ministry because it's hard. Um, so when you can develop an eternal perspective about life, about ministry, about God's call, about what it takes to um, get through the hard things and actually thrive in, in who God has made you to be, then that's, that's a passion of mine. It's coming out in May of 2017, right in time for Mother's Day, and uh, published by Ravel. And um, I am very excited. This is, this is the life I know. This is really the only life. I know. And um, because of that, I have, a, I have a deep affinity for, for other pastors' wives. Great empathy and affinity. And if we're in a room together, all we have to do is look at each other in the eye and it's like, man, I get you. I get you. I've been there. 
Our guest on today's conversation has been Kay Warren, co-founder of Saddleback Church and wife of Pastor Rick Warren. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, a very special thanks, Kay. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.